All right, well, thank you to our praise team. Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. I love the last stanza of that song that we just sang, where it says, No more debt I owe. It's paid in full, it is finished. I remember when I was a young adult. My goal was to get my student loan paid off, and I could not wait to get that thing paid off. It was $111.59 a month, and um, it was a 10-year note at like 9 or 10% interest, and our goal, Kathy and I's goal, was to get that thing paid off, and we celebrated when it was finished, and when we think about what Christ has done for us. He has gone to the cross. He has died in our place. It is finished. There's nothing else that Jesus needs to do to save us from our sin. He has done it all. It is finished. Well, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 to begin, but thank you for praying for us. Kathy and I have been gone. Uh, We took a trip this past week and Part of the week before as well, we had a nice time away visiting with friends and with family, traveling to a bunch of different locations that we've never been before. And after we got back, I started to calculate just how much we have driven. And it came out to somewhere around 4,000 miles. We drove somewhere around 4,000 miles on our trip. And so as you can imagine, I had a lot of windshield time, a lot of time to think a lot of time to pray, a lot of time to talk to Kathy, and when she would nod off, I would listen to the radio. And while I was listening to the radio, I think it was in Arkansas on our way down to Texas, there was a collage of old, you might be a redneck jokes that came out from Jeff Foxworthy. And there were a bunch of them, but I could only remember two. The the first had to do with church, so that one was pretty easy to remember. That one was, if you've ever made change in the offering plate, you might be a redneck. (laughs) And then the other one I remember was, if you've ever cut the grass and found a car, you might be a redneck. And so we had a lot of time on the road, and while Kathy was working on stuff, I, I was thinking. I was thinking about what it was that I wanted to share with you this morning, coming off of the Thanksgiving holiday. I wanted to share something practical. I wanted to share something tangible. I wanted to share something valuable, something that would apply to all of us. And I kept coming back to the need for all of us to continue to grow in gratitude. And then I began to think about why folks seem to struggle so much with gratitude. In other words, what is it that gets in the way of our being a thankful people? Not just situational thankfulness. Most of us say thanks when someone holds the door open for us at Walmart, or if someone pays us a compliment, or if someone gives us something that we weren't expecting, or when we reflect on a few things that we're thankful for when we're staring at a giant turkey on our table on Thanksgiving Day. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about having a thankful heart that defines us as a Christian, a constant attitude of joy and gratitude. What is it that seems to stand in the way of us consistently demonstrating and exuding a grateful heart? And I kept coming back to what I'm seeing more and more of today. Almost everywhere I turn, 
whether it's in relationships or marriages or in the workplace, even in the church, and it's a culture of grumbling. It's almost as if the thing to do these days is to grumble or to complain about everything. And so to steal a little bit from Jeff Foxworthy's playbook, I began to make a mental list. And here it is. If you're always thinking of yourself first before you think of others, you might be a grumbler. If you're quick to criticize others, you might be a grumbler. If you're seemingly always finding something negative about people or situations, you might be a grumbler. If, you've never, if you never seem satisfied, you might be a grumbler. If you think you always know what's best, you might be a grumbler. If you're constantly thinking, that's not fair, you might be a grumbler. And if no one can do things right but you, you might be a grumbler. And on and on and on we could go. Grumbling is the epitome of selfishness. And so before we look this morning at how we can grow in gratitude, I think we need to first stop and consider the sin of grumbling. So here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the Christian is to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you also appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain." Now, the key to fully understanding this text, and really any text in the Bible, is it's to first examine the context. And so when Paul says here in verses 14 through 16 that we are not to be involved in any sort of grumbling or disputing, it comes on the heels of what he shared in verses 12 and 13 in reference to working out our salvation. You see that? And so what he is saying here is, as you work out your salvation, do it without fear, without grumbling or disputing. In other words, grumbling or disputing is an impediment to us working out our salvation or us living out our salvation in a way that pleases God. Why? Verse 13, because it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so Paul's giving a sharp command here. He's giving a sharp command that those who name the name of Christ need to quit complaining about their life or the circumstances in their life or the people in their life. There's no room for complaining, Paul says. There's no room for grumbling in the life of the Christian. Why? Because, again, God is at work in our lives. And we'll flesh that out here in a moment, but if we jump ahead a little bit to Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we see that Paul is practicing what he preaches. There he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, "...not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am, 
I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Essentially, grumblers are selfishly a slave to their circumstance. But as Paul worked out his salvation, he was good with whatever has come his way. Grumbling wasn't the first sin, but certainly was close. Grumbling goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Adam. What did Adam do when he sinned? He said, oh Lord, why did you have to go and give me this woman? If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have eaten of the forbidden fruit. So instead of blaming himself and taking responsibility for what he has done, he blames God. His first thought is to grumble or to complain. And what about the Israelites who were being led by Moses in the, in the wilderness? They were the prototypical grumblers and disputers. Turn with me back to the book of Exodus, beginning in, verse, in chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Look at verse 24. Exodus 15 In verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Look at chapter 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 16. Verse 7 And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And then chapter 17 in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then over to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or could, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why do we have these examples? We're a New Testament church, right? Christ has died for our sins. We are the church. We are to live out the one another's of the Christian life. We are to be salt and light in this world. We are to be God's ambassadors in this crazy world that we live in. And so why do we have all of these examples in the Old Testament? The answer is, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so look at that with me real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul addresses this. He says in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses. And the word baptized there at the root means identify. They all identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, 
for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as examples for us. He's writing to the church at Corinth. These things happened. These situations that happened in the Old Testament, that which we have recorded for us in the Old Testament happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then verse 10, he mentions the sin of grumbling. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things, and he's talking about the things that he mentioned, the things we just read about. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And the Bible often talks about having overconfidence overconfidence and that kind of wells up within us that we got it we don't need a lot of help we got it figured out it leans way more towards pride than it does humility we need not be overconfident in our own abilities in this life our confidence is in the lord right? Our confidence is in him. Our confidence is in what he has done on our behalf. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The Greek structure actually says, all things do without grumbling or disputing. All things do without grumbling or or disputing. Paul doesn't give a list of acceptable things for the Christian to grumble about. Instead, he says that we are to do all things without grumbling. The Greek word for grumbling derives from a disgruntled attitude, a sinful negativity. Disputing involves human reasoning. It's sort of like building a case to substantiate your grumbling. And both are sinful, Paul says. All of what Paul is saying here presupposes that there will be times of difficulty in our lives. There will be circumstances that come our way that may even be deemed to be unfair. Paul says, don't go there. Don't get, go there. The Christian should never complain or grumble because even though it may be directed at others, it's actually questioning God. And so we have to kind of get our minds around that this morning, that grumbling and disputing, the reason why it's a sin is because it's a sin against God. It can be a sin against others as well, but predominantly it is a sin against God. It's actually questioning God. As Brian prayed for us this morning, and he reflected on the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God. John MacArthur says it this way, every circumstance of life is to be accepted willingly and joyfully, without murmuring, complaint, or disappointment, much less resentment. There is no exception. It is always sinful for believers to complain about anything that the Lord calls them to do, or about any circumstance which He sovereignly allows. Whether the task is difficult or easy, whether the situation involves a blessing or a trial, negative attitudes are forbidden." 
And so as we move on into our text here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul follows up this command with the direct connection to us and to others because others are always affected by grumbling, right? Grumblers need an audience. Grumblers look for other grumblers. Sin always loves company. And we become complicit in the sin of grumbling when we receive it. And so God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, doesn't necessarily owe us an explanation as to why we are not to grumble and dispute, but Paul gives us three reasons why here. Three reasons why. And the first is because it reflects poorly on our God. Verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. So Paul gives three descriptions here of what a child of God's life should look like. First, he says we are to be blameless. The idea of being blameless carries the idea of not being able to pin something on us. Being blameless means to have no noticeable blemishes or or defects. I was mowing the grass a couple of weeks back, which I love to do. Not sure it needed mowing, but I told Kathy I'm going to go out and mow the grass. So I must have brushed up against a bush that had berries on it, and one of the berries must have slipped down my back onto the seat, and I sat on it. And apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently it left a big purple stain on the backside of my shorts. It was obvious to others, but it wasn't obvious to me. It's impossible for us to perfectly, spotlessly live our lives. But being blameless means we're not to have any big stains in our life. Not to have anything hugely noticeable in our life. Something that is distractional. Or to be blameless. Second, he says here in verse 15, we are to be innocent. And this means that we're to be free of contaminants. We're to be pure in our life. So Paul's referring here to those things that can taint or spoil our testimony. And then third, we're to be above reproach. And this carries the idea of being beyond accusation. And if you know the qualifications for the elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says that the elders are to be above reproach. In other words, they're to be beyond accusation. It doesn't mean that they're to be perfect, but that their life is free of contaminants. Their life doesn't have some huge stain on it. They're to be beyond accusation so they can lead and shepherd and guide and teach the church. The second reason why we're not to grumble is because the unbelieving world is watching the unbelieving world is watching. Verse 15, again, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So Paul tells us something that we already know because we live in the world. And the world that he lived in was crooked and perverse. The world we live in is crooked and perverse. 
It's as crooked as a dog's hind leg, as my grandfather would say. We live in a difficult world. And as I look and examine the, 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 the landscape in not only America but around the world, it seems like it's getting darker to me. Maybe it's always been this dark and I haven't paid attention, but it seems like it's getting darker to me. It seems like we're moving towards something worse than what we have even now. We live, Paul says, in a crooked and perverse world. And both of those words basically mean the same thing. The word crooked is a bit more descriptive. It's the Greek word scolios, which is where we get our English word scoliosis. Some of you may have scoliosis, or you may have been born with a curvature of your spine. I knew a girl in college who was born with scoliosis. So she had a little bit of a crooked spine. So when she was born, when she was a baby, they put a rod in her back to straighten up her spine. The world we live in is crooked and perverse. And if we don't know that, we're being extremely naive. It's a crooked world. It's a difficult world. The, the world that we live in is not a Christian world. It's a difficult world. Everything is fighting against what we believe. Everything is fighting against what God says in his word. We live in a crooked and perverse world. It's very, very dark, spiritually speaking. And so what does Paul say? We need to quit complaining and be lights in this dark world. We're to be the lights that we're supposed to be. If we're concentrating constantly on complaining and grumbling and disputing, that's taking up the time that we would have to be lights in the dark world. And then the third reason that we need to stop grumbling is because it's a smack in the face to those who have invested in our lives. Look at the second part of verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. One of the things that I most disliked about sports was the running part. And so you people that go out and run for fun, I don't get it. I just don't get it. That was the part that I had to do so that I could play sports. But the running part, I, I didn't like it. And I felt like I was spinning my wheels a lot of time. I was running, I was toiling in vain, it seemed, in my estimation. Paul reminds them of his investment in their lives. So let's switch gears here a little bit. He, he wants that investment to matter because one day, he says, in the day of Christ, he calls it, he will stand before Christ and so will they. And so will we. He reminds them to remember his toil, remember his work, remember what he did, remember his investment in their lives. Paul often appeals to the relationships that he has with people. He often pleads with them to, to do the right thing, even if it's for his sake. So many people have invested in my life over the years, and I don't want to disappoint them. A lot of people have put, in, put their eggs in my basket. We were, uh, when we were in Illinois, we, we were at the church that I grew up in. And it's always fun to go back there and to see people that were really a big part of my life when I was a young child. 
I'm 60 years old. When I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all the way through high school, these people were huge in my life, and they're still there. And so when we go in, it's always like old home week. I, I get to see these people who invested in my life, and they, they had no skin in the game. I mean, they, they didn't need to invest in little Dave. I mean, I was one of many kids in the church, but they came alongside of me. Many of these people used to go watch me play baseball. They used to go watch me play basketball. They would pull me in, aside in the hallway at church and encourage me and hug me. And, and to see these people who are now really older, barely can walk, they love the Lord. They're still faithful to Him and to the church. And they see me and they come up to me and in a crippled sort of way, they wrap their arms around me. Most of them can't get their arms around me, but they try to wrap their arms around me. I love those people. And I love them because their love for me was real. Their investment in my life was real. And I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want them to hear that Dave went off the path, that Dave somehow did this or that. I don't want to discourage those people because those were the people that invested in my life. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And remember, I didn't teach you that way. I didn't invest in your life so that you would do these things. And so as we mull over and consider what Paul is saying here in our text about grumbling and complaining, and we earnestly desire to grow in our gratitude, let me give you five key reminders that I think will help us. Five key reminders. First, we are to realize that God is good. Do, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is good? It's a crooked and perverse world that we live in. There's a lot of things going on in our world. There's a lot of nasty things going on in our world. There are a lot of things that God allows to happen in our world. Do you believe that God is good? Or is it just something we say? Is it just something that we read in the scriptures? I mean, Brian read for us this morning that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. Do we believe that? If we don't believe that, it's going to change how we live. If we do believe that, it will change how we live. While man is born inherently bad and dead in our sins, God is inherently good. It is his nature. Psalm 100 says the Lord is good. And because he is good... Because he's good, Romans 8.28 says that he is working all things together for our good. Wrap our minds around it. God is good, and because he's good, he is now allowing and working all things that come into our life, whether it's things that we would deem good or things that we would deem bad, he is working all things together for our good. I think folks sometimes forget 
that God is intimately involved in our lives. He is sovereignly in control of all things. Nothing random happens in the universe that's outside of his control. And so in that sense, God does sovereignly bring circumstances and people into our lives. He does often test us, and he allows us to be tested to see if we're going to be faithful to him through the trial, if we're going to be obedient to his word important to be reminded that God either prescribes or he permits all things. And so we need to recognize that our good God is constantly at work in our lives. And we should be faithful to him and obedient to his word. So I want to put a little bit of meat on the bones here as it relates to this, because he doesn't tell us how he's working. We often don't know how he's working until we look back. Make sense? So there are really two wills of God that are mentioned in Scripture. There's this sovereign, secret will of God that only he knows. And then there is the revealed will of God that we know because we've been given it and it's in his word. So we know what he wants us to know as it relates to his word, we have it in our possession. We live by it, hopefully. We're immersed in it. We see it as his word. We desire for it to penetrate our hearts and for us to live it out. But he doesn't always, it's not always obvious or evident as to how he's working in our lives. Why do you want me to go through this, God? Why am I going through this this financial difficulty. I don't have enough money to put food on my table. Why am I going through this? What are you trying to teach me here? Why can't I get along with my spouse? What's wrong? I mean, we loved each other. We got married. We, we talked and we were in each other's lives. And now all of a sudden, there's nothing there. I don't have any feelings for him. I don't have any feelings for her. Something has happened. Why am I going through this? I didn't ask for this. Why did I lose my job? Why are we late on the mortgage? Why does my son or my daughter have this illness that she can't or he can't seem to get over? Why has my family abandoned me? Why am I going through all these difficulties at work? I'm a good employee. I go to work. I get there on time. I try to do what the boss tells me to do. And it's a grind every day single day. Why? 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 If we let our minds go in that direction, it's going to put us farther down in the pit. So we need to recognize that God is good and that he's working all things together for our good. If you're going through a deep valley, God wants you to depend upon Him to see you through. He wants you to be grateful for the trial. That's hard. That's hard. That's difficult. There were some difficult times financially for Kathy and I when we were first married. We, we, we had to watch every penny we spent. And I'm thinking, you know, 
this is hard. I'm like a servant of yours, Lord. I'm, I'm, I want to I love you with my life. I want to serve you. I want to affect the lives of other people. Why is this happening to me? Why isn't it happening to the guy who doesn't go to church anymore? Why isn't it happening to the guy who is always constantly stirring up trouble? Why is it happening to us? The Lord is good. And He's working all things together for our good and for His glory. That is paramount for us to understand that in the Christian life. So the first key reminder is we're to realize that God is good. Second, because God is good and because He's sovereignly in control of all things, we are to give thanks in every circumstance. It's a complete flip with the mindset. We like to give thanks to the Lord when He gives us something. Somebody shows up at the door and they bring us a nice gift basket. Oh, we want to thank the Lord for that. We needed that just at this time. Thank you, Lord, for that. Well, what happens if a guy comes to your door and he gives you a bill and he says, you owe $1,000 for something? Eh, not so much on that. But God is good. He's sovereignly in control of all things. We're to give thanks in every circumstance. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says that very thing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. What if you woke up today with only the things that you thank God for yesterday? Are we a thankful people? Are we growing in gratitude? All grumbling is ultimately a complaint against God. And I think it's important to be reminded that when Paul wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, he was in prison. He was in prison. When he said, do all things without grumbling or complaining, he was most likely in a cold, damp dungeon shackled to a guard 24-7. Not the best of situations. But Paul says here to the church at Thessalonica that it's God's will that we be thankful in every situation. Why? Because God is at work. He is at work. There's something we need to learn. There's something we need to grow through. We have difficulties come into our life because we are not yet there. Third, along with giving thanks in every circumstance, we're to rejoice in every circumstance. So not only are we to be thankful in everything, but we're to rejoice in every circumstance. Just a couple of verses earlier in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church in verse 16, he says to rejoice always. You see the repetitive nature of all this? Paul uses the word all and everything and every time a lot. A lot. You know, even in difficult circumstances, James in James 1, 2 says, consider it all joy my brethren, when you encounter various trials. We're to have this settled confidence that God is at work. God is in control of all things. We're good with whatever he brings our way. That's so countercultural, isn't it? That is so, that is so different than what you will get if you go and you talk to some secular counselor. You mean I'm supposed to learn and grow through a difficulty? Well, No, 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 no. Let's work on how we can get this difficulty out of your life. Or we can remove ourselves from the difficulty. That's not what we're to do as Christians. We're to rejoice in every circumstance. 
knowing that God is good. He is in control of all things. And whatever it is he brings our way, we're good with it. One of the darkest times of my life was when my mom took her own life back in 1991. My mom was a really good mom, loved her beyond words. She was a great mother. My kids never got to know my mom. She died at a young age in her 40s. And so our family was asking why. What happened? Where is this woman that we all love and depended upon so much? And so I had to practice what I preach. And I had to think, you know, God is at work somehow, some way, in the worst circumstance in my life, He is at work. Rejoice in every circumstance. Fourth, we're to view our circumstances in light of eternity. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. I've come to the conclusion in my own life, and I I think it, it applies to all of us, we put so much stock in this life we, we, we have all of our eggs in the basket of this life, but the Scriptures tell us we need to see things in light of eternity. This life isn't all that there is. It's a blip on the radar screen. We're to remember our citizenship is in heaven. We are aliens and strangers here on this earth. We're not to lay up treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but we are to lay up treasures in heaven Fifth, we're to remember that God's grace is sufficient. This is huge. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. In other words, we see the power of Christ as we become more and more weak. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Life is not about comfort, but conformity. Conformity to Christ. I see that more as I've gotten older. God has supplied the grace that we need to get through even the most difficult of circumstances. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word. We need to stop complaining about everything and be joyful for what God has done for us and be joyful for who God has put into our lives. Our mission is to keep growing in gratitude. And so with that in mind, <clears throat> trust me, uh, lots of time to think while I was gone. And I began to make mental notes, and then I have the note thing on my phone. And so when we would stop, all these things that are going through my mind, I'd put them down in the, my notes section. And uh, th- this is a stripped-down version. It's an abbreviated version of the original. But I began to write down the things that I'm grateful for. Have you ever done this? I, had, I, I could make pages and pages on this. So again, the Reader's Digest version. First, 
I am grateful for my God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation from sin that has been granted to me is undeserved, and it is amazing. It's mind-blowing that God, through Christ, would do what he has done for me. I am grateful for my wife, Kathy. She is the greatest earthly gift that the Lord has given to me. I'm grateful for our son, Matt, our two daughters, Amanda and Allison, and their spouses, Kirsten, Aaron, and Lucas. The Lord has given us a wonderful family. And of course, I'm grateful for our soon-to-be six grandchildren, for Blake and Riley and Jackson and Josie and Molly and the new one that's soon to pop, Isabella. I'm grateful for my friends, many of whom I got to see and spend time with this past week. I have the best friends in the world, and I mean that. So grateful for our church. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's not in the Bible, but it seemed to work. Missed you all while we were gone. I'm so grateful for our elders and our deacons. These men are spiritually qualified. They serve our church so well. I am grateful for our staff here at the church, particularly for Pastor Flip, who serves as our associate pastor, and Ben Stum, who serves as our youth director. Both of these men serve so faithfully, along with those who assist them. I'm equally thankful for our secretary, Gloria Myers. She is a gem. I'm thankful for our janitorial staff who tirelessly serve the Lord and our church by keeping our facility clean. I'm thankful for all who attend Grace Life. I can't wait to see you each and every Sunday morning. I'm grateful for all who serve here at the church. We are blessed, aren't we? We are blessed with an army of godly servants. I'm grateful for my parents who sacrificially raised me to know the Lord. I'm grateful for my siblings and my extended family. I'm grateful for all those who took the time to invest in my life over the years. I'm grateful for the abundant gifts and possessions that the Lord has entrusted me with, far too many to list. God has abundantly given Kathy and me everything we need to live our lives for him. We realize that God owns it all. We're simply stewards of what he's given to us. And so we want to use all that he's entrusted us with for him. I'm grateful for the good times. And I'm grateful for the bad times. I'm grateful for the ups. I'm grateful for the downs. I'm grateful to the Lord for entrusting me to serve as your pastor for the past 12 plus years. We have so much to be thankful for here at our church. And all that's just the tip of the iceberg. I could name hundreds and hundreds of people that I'm so grateful for that have invested in my life or that uh, have, have been, meant so much to me over the years. The question that I want us to answer today, and you need to answer this for yourself in your own heart, are you growing in gratitude? Are you growing in gratitude? Does the description that was read in Psalm 100 express your heart and your life? What and who are you thankful for? And with all that in mind, it's important to consider the proper response of a grateful Christian. It's the second part of thanksgiving that we often miss. It's the response to our thankfulness. It's the giving part. Giving should be the direct result of our thanks. So I want to close with another great quote from John MacArthur. <clears throat> and here it is. A thankful heart 
is one of the primary identifying characteristics of a believer. It stands in stark contrast to pride, selfishness, and worry. And it helps fortify the believer's trust in the Lord and reliance of His provision, even in the toughest of times. No matter how choppy the seas become, a believer's heart is buoyed by constant praise and gratefulness to the Lord. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. I want to finish my days out on this earth with a thankful heart. That's my desire. I hope it is your desire as well. Look, we're a work in progress. We're all growing in the Christian life. We need to grow in gratitude, folks. It'll change who you are. It'll change how you think. It'll change how you interact with others. Let's thank the Lord for who He is. Lord, thank You. This morning, none of this means anything without You. It's all from You. It's all about how we're to live our lives for You with others in mind and others in view. We're so grateful for all the things that You've given to us. We need to continue to grow in our gratitude, not just situationally, not just where we say thanks for this or thanks for that, but really to have a heart that exudes gratitude, that exudes thankfulness. That is my prayer for not only me, but for all of us today, that we would see you high and lifted up. We would see your goodness. We would see how you're working in our lives. We would be grateful for all of it. And it's in that light that we pray and thank you for what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us because we can only come to the Father through the Son. And it's through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. <laughs>